Welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Corey Frank, author of Three Feet to the Left, A New Captain's Journey from Pursuit to Perspective, which is a book about the leadership journey he experienced as United's uh, then youngest captain. Now, in addition to still flying 737s for United, Corey works as an inspirational and keynote speaker on topics related to leadership and is on the board of directors at the United We Care Employee Relief Fund. He earned his bachelor's in aeronautical science from Embry-Riddle in 2003 and has an MBA from Penn State. Corey, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. It's a treat. All right. Uh, so one of the experiences that uh, sucked you into aviation was a thing that we don't really hear so much about anymore, which is visiting the pilots on the flight deck during a flight. Uh, tell me about the experience you had on that flight to London when you were in high school. Sure. Well, you know, like so many people that, that come to Embry-Riddle or are drawn to aviation, there's usually one of those defining moments. And for me, it was definitely uh, that trip where my family was going to London from Washington, D.C. to visit my sister who was studying abroad at the time. And uh, I'll never forget that that moment because I'd heard um, through the grapevine that perhaps there were, might be an opportunity to see inside the cockpit at some point during the flight. And so, of course, you know, being someone who was trying to make a decision on do I pursue a traditional college degree, um, like in business or politi political science, something like that, or do I pursue this less traditional, but really the thing that I was feeling drawn to, which was aviation. So uh, we got on board the plane. I said hello to the flight attendant and asked if there might be a chance, explain my situation. She said, well, she'd check and get back to me. So back to the way in the back of the 747. I'm sitting with my family. Uh, we get through most of the flight and the flight attendant, and as the sun's starting to come up, uh, comes back and says, hey, the captain says they'll see you now if, you, if you're still interested. And so, of course, I was. And we walked our way through uh, to the front of the plane, past the Rosa coach, up the staircase onto the second deck. We're walking up to the cockpit door and they open the door and I'm just struck by this surreal scene as this giant burst of light kind of hits me. And I look into the cockpit and I'm overwhelmed by like the switches and the dials. And there's the three pilots, the captain, the flight, uh, the first officer and the flight engineer who are very busy, you know, kind of doing their thing, but also just enjoying a cup of tea or whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and I remember coming in and just was spellbound by the magnificent view as you look out and the sun's rising over the uh, North Atlantic and you're list listening to the wind rush past the cockpit. Uh, and it was just this amazing scene. So I ended up visiting with them for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, something like that and explain my situation, what I was con considering um, and then say goodbye and thank you and went back to my seat. Well, a little while later, the flight attendant returns and she says to me, you're really lucky. And I said, oh, I know I could never have done that on an American carrier. Thank you so much. She said, no, 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 you don't. She said, you don't understand. I, um, they've, you must have made quite the impression on the captain because they've invited you back for the landing. And I totally was not expecting that at all. Um, so here we go again, past uh, all the rows of coach, up the steps, past the first class section or um and back into the cockpit. But this time it was much, much busier as the crew was actively flying the jet and uh, the flight engineer had kind of got me tucked into the uh, the jump seat. And 
uh, I was there all the way through as we're descending over the British countryside and um, or the English countryside, I should say. And the, uh, through, I, I remember there was a holding pattern and all that stuff. And we came in and uh, the, the, the flight engineers pointing out all of the, the, the big sites, you know, there's Big Ben, there's Wimbledon, there's, um, there's Heathrow right out ahead of us. And so we touched down and I, I remember thinking like, well, if that's not a sign that this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life, I don't know what is. And sure enough, uh, the pieces just kind of fell nicely into place after that. So with, uh, you know, new safety measures in place since 9-11, um, I've heard that you can't really do that anymore. I know that was a really big thing for me when I was a kid. I didn't end up being a pilot, but I do remember going up to the cockpit and, you know, talking to the pilots. This was on a Pan Am flight. So, you know, legit way back. Um, but, you know, I'm wondering, you know, has, has have, have those regulations relaxed at all since then? Are you still able to do that? Or as a pilot, how do you find ways to inspire young people? Well, definitely not in the United States, uh, at least definitely not that I'm aware of, def not on any of my flights, for sure. Um, I, I think that, you know, I try to welcome people into the cockpit before and after my flights. Um, the, that's about as close as we can get. But that was partially, in many ways, why I wanted to write my book, because I wanted people, I wanted to give people an immersive look at what it's like to be an airline pilot, because I figured... There's lots of people who are aspiring airline pilots. There's business travelers, there's leisure travelers, and they get on board and they look at the cockpit door and they don't get to see what really happens in front of it. So I thought, well, maybe there'd be a way that I could bring them inside the cockpit and take them on the journey that I had as a new leader, especially as a new captain, um, leave them with some insights that they could use in their own life and, and also hopefully inspire them to embrace their life's journey wherever that may lead. Yeah. Well, so we're actually, as we're recording this in September, I know this will uh, be broadcast later on, but uh, we're just a few days away from 9-11 uh, now. Um, you finished your degree in 2003, which means you were in college during 9-11 and afterwards. Can you tell me what it was like on campus at on that day and, and in the time afterward? Yeah, well, I was actually a flight instructor for Embry-Riddle at the time. Oh. I had uh, just gotten hired actually as a part, you know, a part-time student instructor uh, within the last month before that, and I remember my memory of of 9/11 was that I had done a pre-flight uh, like a ground session with one of my students, and we were going to go uh, go fly, and the flight line was closed, and I can remember huddling around with all the different instructors uh, watching. You know, I can't remember if it was live or if it was the the re the re. Um, the replays of planes hitting the towers and things. And um, you just, you could just feel all over the campus like this, uh, what's, what's going on, just like everybody in the, in the country, but especially being such an aviation community, there was this question of like, what's the future of our industry? And as, especially as students at the time, we had to wonder like, well, what does this mean for our future careers? What does this mean for the people that we may know? A lot of people obviously, students have family that works in the airlines. And so I think a lot of tension and such came in. Admittedly, I, I could see the, I'm not on campus now, but uh, I would imagine that COVID is kind of having a similar type of effect to people that are on campus asking, what does this mean for the future of our industry? And what does that mean for me as a student, perhaps? Um, and yet, Sometimes those industry defining moments, uh, they do change things clearly, but they also provide 
um, can provide some opportunities uh, for innovation and uh, change to the to the way that the industry works. You saw furloughs happening at Continental when it was merging with United, and you saw the industry change after 9-11. And some pilots who've been doing this for decades say the industry is cyclical and it'll come back and you just got to stick it out. Um, one of the workshops that you do is also about choosing your flight path and finding success in your career. Uh, I'm wondering right now if you're worried about your future as a pilot and what what does your flight path look like right now? You know, I think part of the experience that, as I describe in the book, a lot of the pilots that with whom I flew uh, ended up, part of the challenge was, you know, we were merging the cultures of the two companies when I became captain. The book takes place between 2013 and 2014. Um, a lot of my the first officers with whom I flew had been you know, once or twice furloughed pilots uh, on the United side of the company. Um, and they brought a lot of pr interesting perspective to this, that you live and die, obviously, in the airlines by your seniority number. And sometimes that number is up and sometimes that number is down. And it, uh, my what I really came to take away from this was that there were people who let the events of their lives consume them. And then there were also people uh, who let the events and and kind of the rise and fall of the industry shape their experience and just kind of let help guide them along. Um, I suspect that you know the same thing is going to be true for for me personally. You know whether right now it looks like I'm going to end up losing my captaincy, we'll be going back to first officer somewhere. Uh, that's an admittedly very soft landing, if you will compared to other people in the industry who are more junior and may not be as fortunate. Um, the, on the, you know, in many ways, I think it'll be, it'll be an opportunity for me to learn and, you know, to experience different things, perhaps fly a different type of airplane than I've flown in the past. But even people, uh, you know, one of, there was a first officer who came, comes to mind that I flew with on my last trip, which sadly was quite a few uh, months ago now. Um, and, she was very junior uh, with the company and it was, we flew together on the day that like they announced, like it was the first time the company kind of indicated that, Hey, really, really rough uh, sea, you know, air uh, may be ahead of us. And when I followed up with her several months later and asking how she was doing and what, um, what she was looking to potentially go fly. And she was talking about taking, uh, taking the opportunity to go fly for, um, Samaritan's Purse in Africa. And immediately I was like, what an amazing experience that this could prevent. Like maybe she would never have, she probably would never have sought that out uh, on her own, but because perhaps the situation will come where she may be forced uh, to look for other work, it could be a really interesting life season to have, you know, that would, you end up looking back and say, well, I never would have planned that. I never would have sought that particular path out, but I wouldn't be surprised if years from now, she's actually saying what a neat experience and opportunity that was. Yeah. So you, when you saw, you know, the industry sort of taking a hit after, after nine 11, um, what made you want to stick with it is you didn't graduate for a couple of years after that. And you saw that sort of happening while you were still a student, why did you stick uh, stick with aviation? Well, for starters, you know, like most of us, I didn't want to give up on my dream. 
mm-hmm. um, that was probably the first and foremost driver of, of that was I just didn't want to give up. Um, and I knew that things, w- things would recover. Uh, the other piece, though, in many ways, is that I was from from a, to a certain extent, at least, you you could say that there the industry going on pause for me personally and people who were in college at the time was not necessarily a, a, a terrible thing because I didn't have the flight time you know that would be necessary to get hired down the road um, and. So if the industry had continued to be hiring all the way along, like you potentially would be losing out on seniority numbers. So the slowdowns in the industry, while nobody, myself included, would ever want those to occur, um, if you stay focused and disciplined, like you can put yourself in a in a better position by continuing to try to you know build as much time as you can, take those opportunities. And in, in our case, I think the the regional level actually started to grow because of the contractions at the at the main line, and so that you know was in many ways for me was a, a good thing for the for my career personally. Again, I got, just to be clear, like in no way am I saying that I or anybody else would have wanted September 11th to occur. Just the same as current students, uh, I'm sure, would not want the industry to be facing the COVID situation, but. But students that are on campus right now, actually, I see a lot of opportunity for them um, to use this time, this slowdown, as a way for them to build flight time and catch up, get the experience they need so that when the, re- the industry re- rebounds and begins hiring again, they're ready. Yeah. Uh, so you're on the board of the United We Care Employee Relief Fund, um, and I imagine you you guys have gotten a lot more requests of support from this year than you're used to. You tell me what that's uh, what that's like in that organization right now. Yeah, I mean, we were we're in the midst of of reevaluating how we're going to, you know, manage things and how we're going to prepare. Uh, you know, the United We Care is a is a wonderful organization that really does provide short term crisis uh, emergency relief to employees in need. We help people stay in. Their houses. Uh, we help uh, with uh, a lot of times. We're called it to help with disaster relief type scenarios, things, um, you know, hurricanes, whatever. Wildfires um, in California right now. Yeah. Yeah, all of those uh, elements. I mean, that's not our truly our primary function, but uh, we do we do end up servicing those needs for employees a lot of times. Uh, or we become a vehicle for the company to service those needs. Um, it, that has been a very rewarding group to be a part of, uh, just just to see the the way that the company really does come together around We Care, and um, you know it's employee funded, uh, and the the United uh, underwrites the administrative costs of the of the fund for now. Um, but I think all of that really puts it, it shows that you know we are a family. At United, and we want to take care of uh, of all of our our co- uh, colleagues, whether that's pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, rampers, management personnel, you name it. So, employee funded does that mean that uh, you know they uh, employees opt in to donating to it? That's correct. Yeah, whether it's you know one time donations through fundraisers, or for uh, we try to get people to do even just a dollar per paycheck uh, yeah. to, to help fund WeCare. Yeah, we do a similar thing here at Embry Riddle. 
Yeah, we got a lot of support. Everybody in our division, we have a hundred percent participation in uh, donating back to Embry Riddle. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so you um, you became a seven thirty seven pilot uh, captain at age thirty one, and at the time you were the youngest captain that united. The title of your book, Three Feet to the Left, shows that there's this proximity, this short physical distance between the first officer and captain, but it suggests that there's a bigger change in responsibility. You tell me what that, what, what that shift feels like. Yeah, I, totally. And I think, you know, when you are a first officer, you do a lot of things. Um, you load the flight computers, do the walk around um, outside the airplane, all of those kind of things. But as a captain, it is a really different mindset. One of my favorite quotes in the book comes from a one of the simulator instructors that I had, he was the evaluator um, that did our final check rides. And, and he said to us um, something along the lines of like, you, you guys have been first officers for a long time. And uh, in the past, when things would come up, you know, you'd make your suggestions, then you'd look to your left and say, what do you want to do, Captain? He said, well, now the first officer is going to be saying that to you. And you're going to look to your left. And the only thing you're going to see is your reflection in the window. And it's a response. It's the idea of that you really are responsible for the whole jet and the crew and the passengers. And stepping into that role and and kind of embracing that takes a little bit of time. Um, definitely is kind of what I want. Uh, it, leadership is is nuanced. Is what it really came down to to me that that we think, hey, uh, now I'm in charge. Now I need to make all these decisions. But the truth is that just because you are responsible for all the decisions does not mean you can, should, or must make all the decisions. In fact, I'd argue that it's almost better if it's the opposite direction there, that you can, you learn a lot about empowerment and especially with our teams, which are very short uh, duration teams, you know, maybe one day or four days, probably at the most, at least on the 737 fleet, that you're, you've got a very limited period of time to establish rapport and to engage the other pilots so that they feel um, that that their uh, input is welcomed and um, that they have ownership, you know, sense of ownership, and it's not just you as the captain dictating everything that you want done. Nobody wants to work under that environment, whether you're on the flight deck or in an office uh, somewhere. So I think those subtle nuances is really what what I came to realize were some of the biggest takeaways and the biggest mindset shift. Uh, from moving from the right seat to the left seat. So what made you want to move into doing leadership workshops? Um, well, obviously, like you mentioned, I got my MBA from Penn State. I've always kind of had an interest in business and uh, people obviously love to talk to pilots, uh, at, whether it's at a cocktail party or, you know, whatever. Like you, the, once somebody finds out you're a pilot, they have the standard, you know, 20 questions for you. And I started to realize that there were a lot. There was a lot on the leadership front that really applies whether you're managing a team on an airplane, whether you're in um, uh, municipal insurance was one of my clients, or a real estate company, or uh, you know anywhere else. These uh, different groups that I've I've worked with, the concepts are the same. It's really about leading people and how you are able to. To me, at least, that that's where the angle that I, I take about that 
what does it mean to be a captain? How do you effectively, whether you're a captain in any industry, how do you use what you have and the team that you have to accomplish the most? Because leadership isn't about you. It's about what you can do with your team. Yeah. So all your workshops are uh, seem like they're aviation themed. Um, and as a captain, there are like instances where your leadership and execution are literally like life or death situations for potentially hundreds of people. It's it's a pretty heavy weight, it seems like, to be carrying. But how do you make that connection between the kind of high stakes world and someone who's you know making widgets for XYZ Corporation or leading a team of software developers to run an app that can tell you whether or not the picture is of a cat or a dog? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what, with the keynotes that I do, particularly the, the one that's called Taking Command, How to Sort of Success by Embracing Your Captain's Mindset. Um, I like to put people into immersive environments. I think what the cool part is, so what we do is we we start out with a basic discussion about what the role of the captain is. And then I swear everybody in as ca honorary captains and we go for a flight together and we do four or five, depending on the timing that we have available of these different scenarios that um, ones, you know, for each phase of flight, a pre-flight climb, cruise, I've kind of built it around, you know, simple framework. And, each time we kind of, the, the, the attendees get to immerse themselves into the, pretending that they're captains and they have to, we set up the, the scenario and then they have to put their captain's uh, hat on and decide how to accomplish that. Sometimes that's uh, deals like in the pre-flight example, we're dealing with how do you judge positional authority versus relational authority and, and build rapport with flight attendants during a pre-flight briefing. Or uh, maybe it's how do you, um, in the crew, one of the cruise scenarios, we have a thunderstorm that we need to avoid. And your colleague uh, thinks is flying the airplane and you think you should go one direction. The co uh, colleague thinks they should go the opposite direction around the thunderstorm. How do you navigate that kind of uh, interpersonal dynamics. And each at each one of these phases, we it drills down to uh, an aviation takeaway, which we then apply it, people. It, it's pretty obvious once the takeaway is there, but they, they realize, okay, this, is, this does apply. Um, so as we work through these scenarios, I think people start to see that, yeah, these, they're, they're not just aviation takeaways. And they apply obviously to aviation, but they apply to so many other fields as well. Um, and so if we can uh, circle back to uh, the continental merger with United, I meant to ask this earlier, is sort of related to all this. Um, you mentioned in your book that the um, that a lot of the continental pilots are still wearing, or you know, former continental pilots are still wearing the continental uniforms even like two, three years after the merger. Um, and I'm wondering, is there like at different airlines, is there a difference in culture? And is that a struggle to kind of get people from two different airlines in the same flight deck? Yeah, I think the longer the time goes beyond our merger date, I think the the, the more that those issues kind of subside. At the time that I was um, upgrading to captain, we, we were just starting to integrate that. We were still wearing different colored uniforms. We still... Um, like you say, we people even once we switched to the common uniform, uh, there were still people that would uh, wear their old legacy airline wings, things like that. Um, there were so these mini sub bases. It was very much obvious, like which team you played for. And 
I think as, as human beings, that really speaks to uh, we are pack animals mm-hmm. that we, whether we think of ourselves as that way or not, like our pack, whether it's our family, our company, whatever, it starts to, especially if, if there is change, especially if things are not under attack per se, but you, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's definite change and evolution going on. But we start to identify very solidly with that particular pack. So in giving up uh, the past uh, of our particular pack and embracing our new pack, our shared pack, to me, that, that is a very difficult challenge to manage as, uh, as you know, corporate leaders. Um, and you have to, it is really an evolution. Like we, what's cool with United is uh, uh, both Continental and United can trace their roots back to uh, the same the same man. I like to think of us as these long lost siblings that kind of went away, and we both had our successes and we had our challenges along the way. But then we came together because uh, we realized that our United family could be stronger together than either of us could be on our own. I clearly think that's proven to be the case. The f- further out from the merger that we get, the, the stronger the, the combined United is and the better our collective futures looked, in my opinion. So one, uh, to completely shift uh, topics here, um, one thing that you talked about in your book was uh, when your wife became pregnant and then had a miscarriage. And so when my wife had a miscarriage, uh, we were we were trying for our second child at the time. It was tragic and it weighed a lot on her. Um, she had all the same feelings that your wife, that you wrote about your wife having. Uh, she, you know, knew there was, uh, she knew when there was something wrong and that she also felt somehow that it was her fault afterwards. Um, part of the problem I think was, uh, part of the reason that it felt so isolating at first is that we didn't realize just how incredibly common it is to have a miscarriage. Um, and then like I learned afterwards that practically every mother in my family has had one Hmm. Um, and at one point or another. So why, I'm wondering why it was important to you to include that in the book. First of all, inside a small parentheses, it's interesting to me as a writer, you know, you, you craft the story the way that you think it should go. And then I laugh when I'll get certain book reviews and they'll be like way too much personal stuff in this, the, this, you know. I love the flying parts, but way too much personal stuff. And the very next review that I get will be like, the flying stuff was good, but really liked all the personal touches, you know, that, that you you just can't please everybody. So it's, it's just funny uh, how that works. To me, it was important because this was a defining moment in our lives. And the book, as much as it's about aviation to me, I, I really don't believe that it is an aviation is simply the vehicle to teach this larger lesson that I experienced in my own personal life. Um, so that in one way or another, we are all on our own journeys, three feet to the left, that it is an evolution. Life is taking us from point A to point B. And we don't really, uh, we don't fully see that all the time. We think, um, I feel like sometimes, you know, a merger could come along and can upend your career, whether you're in management or, or in aviation or life circumstances can come up. But sometimes when you look back, it's easy to see where the, how the puzzle pieces all fit together. And, but in the moment you're like, well, how can this possibly serve as a, a force for good in my life? Um, and to me, so much of what I learned from my colleagues, especially the, the furloughed employees that, uh, with whom I flew, and um, through these personal experiences with the, all of this is building. And I don't know, you know, your personal situation. I'm obviously 
sorry that you you guys had to go through that. But I think about, you know, we have a daughter now, she's four and a half. And it blows my mind to think if we had not had that miscarriage, like I w- wouldn't have my daughter today. I'd have a different child with different, um, totally different experiences, perhaps different personality, whatever. Um, and so that really, it's amazing to me to think like, well, I would surely wouldn't want to miss out on the daughter that I have today. You know, I'm sure if we had had, if that miscarriage hadn't come up, then we would be saying, well, I can't imagine not having that child in our in our lives. So I don't know if that answers kind of answers your question, but to me, the book really is all about this embracing the moments and the journey, the each every single moment in our our lives because it's making us who we are. And the, this very moment right now is helping and propelling all of us, uh, and perhaps even the listeners to this podcast uh, in some form or f- way. It's this tiny little shaped. Uh, each of us gets shaped as we go through life. Yeah, each each moment uh, builds on the next, good or bad. Yeah, you can come into some rough seasons, but you can say, well, you know, in my opinion, God is working here, and uh, th- this has to happen because something else is going to happen down the road. And if I didn't have this experience, if I didn't have, you know, um, whatever it might be, positive, negative, you you wouldn't have met the the person you needed to meet. I mean, my wife, I met my wife uh, at Embry-Riddle during a conference. Um, and I would been in the housing department and I was a resident advisor and resident director. And so they had invited me back to talk. Uh, and it was only because I'd had that experience as an RA and an RD that I ended up coming back to the statewide conference for RAs of which my wife was leading a delegation. Like how many puzzle pieces had to align for the two of us to actually meet. You just don't know what you're go- whatever you're going through today, how that's working in your life to prepare you for tomorrow. Yeah. Well, so, and that miscarriage obviously wasn't the end of your journey to parenthood. As you said, you have a daughter now. Um, do you see, uh, or do you hope to see aviation in her future? Uh, I mean, it's up to her on a, she gets excited when she does see the plane. So maybe there's a little bit of that is passed on, but who knows if that's just because she likes to think about daddy being up in the airplane. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see. I definitely wouldn't uh, discourage her by any means. I mean, I think you go in wide-eyed that there this can be a rough and tumble industry. And the, so you have to be prepared. My dad, he always likes to say, uh, when you're making faced with a decision, you need to think about what's the worst possible scenario. And if you're okay with that worst possible scenario, then it's probably a decision that you should make. If you're not okay with the worst possible scenario, then you need to reevaluate. So it's it would be, I obviously was a lucky person with this industry. The timing that I had, for whatever reason, things kind of fell into place. I think helping, uh, without a doubt, going to Ember-Riddle was a huge part of my success. And uh, especially the internships that Ember-Riddle afforded. I mean, that hands down was a, a, a huge accelerant to my career. So I'm very grateful for those those experiences. Obviously, with different timing, different scenarios, could have turned out very, very differently and may still, we don't know. Um, but I, I I would still think if as long as people are have their eyes open and they are comfortable with the fact that I may have to roll with some things, this may get ugly at times and the strangest part with aviation seems to be that it's great right up until it's not. And then it'll turn around and it's like another light switch will flip and 
all of a sudden it'll be mass hiring in the airlines and uh, all over the aviation community. Yeah. So your book is referred to as a memoir, but it's uh, something that you wrote in your 30s. Uh, did you know at the time that you were writing a memoir? And did you ever think to yourself, I'm too young to be writing a memoir? No, I mean, I think, you know, the way I look at a memoir is is a slice of someone's life. A biography would be the complete life. This was not, this is not a biography. This is about a very defined slice of my life and um, that I felt was, was impactful to me. And it was a story that I wanted, wanted to try to share you know, with others. So, uh, but ultimately the story is really, again, it's not about me. It's, I am a vehicle. My, my story is a vehicle, but some of the best praise that I've gotten for the for the book has come from pilots who've reached out to me. My favorite email I've ever received was a, a guy who flew for Cargo Lux. And um, he sent me this note. He's like, it's 2.30 in the morning in Bangkok and I'm, I'm wide awake. Is, it the, is that because of the multitude of time zones that I've crossed? Is it from the spicy street food that I ate or was it that I couldn't um, stop reading your book? And, uh, as he went on later and what other pilots have said is like different airline, different plane, different part of the world, same story. Like there's so many universal truths in aviation. There's so many experiences that we go through um, and to have pilots, you know, write to me and say they felt like they were reading their story instead of my own. Like that's, that's powerful to me. I'm very blessed and fortunate to have lived that experience and have had to have had those opportunities. Um, but ultimately, I hope people look at it, whether it's regional airline pilots who are upgrading for the first time or uh, retired pilots who you know, can think back to when they first took command. Um, I'm hopeful that they look and say, man, this is, uh, yeah, he got it. He, he nailed it. He, he, he makes it, he doesn't sugarcoat. There's, uh, you know, there's parts of the career that are great. There's parts of the career that are really challenging. Uh, but when it comes to like, what's it like to actually be an airline pilot, be away from your family, be facing thunderstorms, blizzards, you name it. Hopefully people, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that people walk away saying yeah, that I'm in the ballpark at least. Do you think you'll write another book? Oh, hit without a doubt, without yeah. a doubt. I've got a couple that I'm you know, trying to outline, uh, a couple novels that I'm interested in perhaps doing. And then of course, if I do get, uh, end up getting, uh, going back to first officer, then I think a great opportunity to have three feet back to the right, um, which in many ways would be a more compelling story than the first one, because how do you lead when you're not in command and how do you adjust to that? And how, you know, what are the life lessons that you could learn from that experience? So we'll see. Yeah, there you go. That's great. We'll continue to the lightning round in a moment, but first I'd like to tell our listeners about this year's homecoming activities. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic and after careful thought and consideration, Embry-Riddle has chosen to go virtual for Homecoming and October West. These events may look different than we're all used to, but we plan to provide opportunities for Eagles to unite through exciting and engaging digital programming for an entire week from October 3rd through 10th. Plan to share your favorite Embry-Riddle moments on social media. Be sure to wear your blue and gold gear and get ready to reunite and celebrate what it means to be forever an Eagle. Check in regularly at alumni.erau.edu slash homecoming to see the latest events and speakers. Now, Corey, it's time for our lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. I'm going to give you five questions, and you're going to give me five answers. The uh, question number <laughs> one 
is uh, you could pilot any plane ever made from anywhere to any destination. What do you choose? I'm in love with the 757. And so I, I would love to get a chance to fly that again. And um, I've always said, like, because of that London flight, uh, I said so that would be a neat trip to have as like a retirement flight one day uh, somehow to I'm in Newark base now, but it'd be interesting to bid to Dulles just so I could fly the Dulles to uh, Dulles to London run. Uh, That's great. Uh, if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? One book for the rest of my life. Um, sorry, I'm thinking. I should have. Oh, should no, take your time. It. Take your time. I don't. I don't give these to you in advance. Uh, some people have trouble pick kind of coming up. With well, them on the pod. There, there's so many great books. That's that's the problem. I mm -hmm. I think one of the books that this is probably a bit, perhaps a bad example, but one that has really come to mind recently that I actually just said I want to read that one again. So I'll I'll say this one. It's a book called Bird by Bird by Anne oh, Lamott. Anne Lamott. Yeah, I know that one. So it's it's a a book on writing and life and someone had recommended it to me and I rave about this book now, especially as a writer, like she just is so witty and yet so practical of like how to not only write, but I think how to really observe life and how to focus in on accepting that uh, you don't always get it right. The first time you need, uh, you need to redo things and, and her just to, being a writer requires you to be very intentional and to really focus on, okay, when you look out, like right out my window here or I'm looking is a, a mountain and there's trees and all this, but like I oftentimes will catch myself, well, how would I describe this if I was writing in the book? And so she talks about having a one inch picture frame and that you have to look through this one inch picture frame and just really dive into the details of what is in that particular tiny little frame at that moment so she's it's it's just a great book for writing and for for life in general so who's your favorite cartoon character my favorite cartoon character inspector gadget i always enjoyed inspector gadget the peculiar ways that it, things that he would have and of course like his i think it's penny was his sidekick yeah. that actually solved all the problems but yeah, yeah, she had the book that was connected to the internet, and she, yeah, yeah, she was the smart one in the in the duo. Um, all right, so picture your ideal grilled cheese sandwich. You're about to take a bite out of this thing. You're holding it in your hands. What's in it? What are you going to sink your teeth into? Well, clearly you're going to have some good cheddar cheese, and you're going to have uh, some ham, and definitely some red pepper flakes, uh, probably. A lot of red pepper flakes because I like some spice. So yeah, you like it spicy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. If you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? Hmm. Uh, well, I think I, I think getting inside uh, two people would come to mind. I'm a I like uh, politics a lot, and uh, I think Lincoln is a, an incredibly interesting person uh, because of you know, how he helped to keep the union together and, and all the nuance that went into that. But I'm also fascinated. I've probably read more books on Lyndon Johnson than anybody else. And not so much uh, for him as a president, but him as the senator, uh, senator 
It's a great book by Robert Caro called Lyndon Johnson, Master of the Senate. And um, if you ever really want to understand that institution and why it is the way that it is, Johnson had a left a huge impact on uh, what it means to be majority leader and um, how he navigated the legislative powers that were uh, that were there. It's just really interesting. That's really cool. I think I remember hearing a neat snippet about uh, LBJ, and he used to own an amphicar, one of those amphibious cars, and I think he would park the thing on the top of a hill, like have somebody with him, and he would like pretend like he had lost the parking brake and the engine had no power and roll down this hill toward a lake and be freaking out this whole time <laughs> and, you know, terrifying the person who's with him. And they just splash into the water and they just float away. And that was a, a trick that he liked to play on people. Yeah, <laughs> was... I've, I've heard of that story before. And he, he just is, I'm not saying that I would lead, if I was a leader, if I was a, a president or a Senate majority leader, I'm not saying I would necessarily want to lead the same way that he is, but he just seems like a fascinating, the more I learn about him, the more I read about him, the more, I think he's one of the more unique, you know, definitely one of the more unique presidents uh, that we've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, thanks very much, Corey, for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. Thanks for having me on. This was a, a real treat. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, Talent Talks is a production of Wicked Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach, Florida, and Corey's condo in Virginia. This episode was recorded by me and edited by Cindy Puckett. Edmund Odarte is our program manager. Bill Thompson is executive director of alumni engagement. And Tony Brown is executive director of communications. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our show or suggest a guest to us, we'd love to hear from you. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. I promise your message comes directly to me. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.